I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this week's episode, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Terrell Carter, who is the Vice President of Greenville University, also the Chief Diversity Officer there at the university. And uh, we spoke with him last week in the previous episode. Make certain to go back to that interview uh, before you listen to the second part of the interview today. But this is uh, our second part in uh, this two-parter, and it is a, the first part was excellent. Uh, Dr. Carter had so many great insights talking about racial justice and the realities that uh, black America faces today. And he continues that conversation uh, uh, in this second part of the interview. So make certain that you stay uh, for the second part of Dr. Carter's interview. Autumn, how are you doing this week? Long weekend? It's been a long weekend. Yes. And, you know, after the flurry that happened in Tulsa uh, to our north, there was a little bit of a flurry of activity to our south in Dallas Mm -hmm. over the weekend. Yeah, there has. You know, obviously you're talking about Vice President Mike Pence uh, attending the worship service at First Baptist Church in Dallas uh, on Sunday. Um, Before we get into his comments, it was... It was really alarming for many people that not only this administration, but a particular segment of our population continues to rush into meeting places that could possibly continue the spread of COVID-19. We are seeing spikes in Texas, uh, where we'll talk about here in just a moment, Uh, Arizona, Florida, South Carolina, Tennessee. Uh, seems like up and down the South, uh, we're seeing these incredible spikes that are beginning to uh, take shape across the country, uh, even out in California as well. And uh, it just it just is an ongoing frustration that you and I have. We've already voiced that about a segment of our population that just doesn't seem to get it. That when we meet in closed spaces like that without adhering to proper social distancing and masking, then it is inevitable that the spread of the virus is going to continue and that there will people die uh, from these mm-hmm. meetings. So uh, mm-hmm. still just just really distraught about all of this. So, um, yeah. so, so at any rate, uh, that, that continues. Uh, people, wear your mask. Uh, practice I social did, distancing and uh, make smart choices. I did see this morning... I did, I did see this morning after spending Sunday, you know, having a choir sing completely unmasked at his church service. And mm-hmm. I think it was his church service. Um, <laughs> Mike Pence is now saying people should wear masks. Yeah, well, he actually did wear a mask at the First Baptist Church of Dallas uh, while he was out in the congregation. And then when he got up to the podium, he, he took it off. And as you can imagine, uh, the congregation there at First Baptist Dallas stood and cheered when he took off the mask because, you know, God forbid they be safe and they actually care about anybody else outside of themselves because that's what a mask we'll, does. I guess we'll just wait two weeks and see how that all bears out. Yeah, and, you know, I, don't, I, I, I do not wish ill on anybody. I hope that they remain healthy. But the reality is there are going to be people who get sick from that, and there's mm-hmm. potential that somebody's going to die because of their irresponsibility. And yep. it's just, uh, it's just uh, uncalled for, unsettling, and just uh, heartbreaking all at the same time. So, so 
Vice President uh, got into the pulpit, uh, had some remarks uh, for the congregation, and uh, it was, you know, a very unsettling sight for many of us as the congregation waved uh, the American flag, which I adore and love. I just don't think it has any place uh, in a sanctuary in a worship service. And uh, it was it was just disheartening to see this melding of civic religion and worship on a Sunday morning come together uh, in a very startling way. Um, you know, uh, Robert Jeffers, who's the pastor there now, his predecessor, W.A. Criswell, uh, many, uh, many, many years ago, talked about the fallacy of separation of church and state. Uh, in fact, said whoever came up with that idea was an infidel. And the even church, though it's the first slot, like the First Amendment of our Constitution. Yeah, and what's even more alarming about that, uh, Chris Will's predecessor, Dr. George W. Truett, has this very famous speech that he gave at the uh, steps on the Capitol in Washington D.C., supporting religious liberty and a strong separation between church and state. So that church has uh, gone through an evolution uh, over mm-hmm. time, uh, having a strong history of church-state separation principles to where it currently exists today. But uh, not only was the scene uh, really uh, alarming for many of us, seeing civil religion like that, uh, Christian nationalism exposed, but also just the words themselves, because there is a deep misunderstanding of history and theology that persists in this Christian nationalism that we saw on display in Dallas, Texas over the weekend. The vice president said this to the congregation, since 1890, when a small group of believers laid the cornerstone of this church, speaking about First Baptist Dallas, this congregation has understood that the foundation of America is freedom, and the foundation of freedom is faith, which makes it altogether fitting that we gather in this place and that we will gather in the days ahead in houses of worship all across America to celebrate freedom. The misnomer in that that phraseology persists in this misunderstanding uh, or maybe even blatant misappropriation of this idea that America was founded as a Christian nation. Because let's explore that logically for a second. Um, First of all, there were already people here in America. They were called Native Americans. I'm related to some of them. That's inconvenient. (laughs) Yeah, it's like history didn't begin here in America until the white people showed up. That's it's always been bizarre to me. But Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to be the case when you're talking about Christian nationalism, that America began when white uh, white faces landed on the shores. You're and, welcome. <laughs> thank you. We appreciate it. You you made our day. Uh, uh, thanks for for all the disease and uh, everything else you brought over. It's, it's my pleasure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, provided a chicken sandwich for that, did you? Get <laughs> some sweet tea. We're good to go. Oh goodness. But you know, so yes. Puritans came over here uh, during the early 17th century after European explorers, quote unquote, and I'm doing air quotes at this point, discovered America. And once America was, again, quote unquote, discovered, and the Puritans came over to establish Massachusetts Bay Colony in Jamestown, 
they began to instill their principles. Yes, they were fleeing persecution, but it was Christian persecution from the King of England and the Anglican Church. But once they arrived on the shores of America, they instituted their own form of persecution. Mm -hmm. And the colonies especially were established based upon those Puritan uh, points of theology and civil government. It was a theocracy that was run by uh, people of faith, that people had this very uh, rigid, skewed idea of what the church should be, and that everybody should conform to that way of thinking and that way of believing. Well, that the persisted. very thing they were trying to escape. Right, exactly. So they, they became what they, they were trying to escape. And then move on to the revolution and then the forming of what is now the United States of America. I mean, we always forget that the United States Constitution in its formation was for white males only. White males only. I'm sorry, but that goes against gospel. And to try to equate the founding of this country based upon Christian principles, I think, is ignorant at best and malpractice at worst. Because if you think about it logically, the United States was founded for white males. Freedom was given to white males. Women did not have a say in uh, the forming of the Constitution. African Americans were not even considered a full human, and God forbid the people who were here prior to the Europeans, they didn't get a say in it either. Mm -hmm. And so we forget that the United States of America was founded on Christian principles, but it was white Christian national principles that it was founded upon. It's just the acknowledgement of the reality that persisted in those days. Now, we've come a long way since then, thank goodness. In some ways. In some ways, and in some ways we have not. But the reality is that the foundation that the country was built on was a faltered foundation. And what we're seeing happening across the country right now is an attempt to right that foundation. You know, here in the state of Oklahoma, we have foundation problems. The earth moves. Uh, we have earthquakes. I had an earthquake uh, last weekend. Um, and so the foundation moves. So every now and again, you have to have a company come in to prop up your foundation if it has uh, fallen or, uh, mm -hmm. or cracked somehow. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's happening right now is somehow we're trying to correct the foundation that was poured over 200 years ago that has a major crack in it. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be repaired. If America is going to have a future, which I certainly hope it does and uh, expect it to, if we're going to do this and do it right, then we need to repair our foundation. And that foundation was built upon white Christian nationalism, and it needs to be repented of and reconciled for the future. So we are hopeful. And hopefully in our second part of the interview with Dr. Terrell Carter here in just a moment, we will explore how we're attempting to right those wrongs and look for a brighter future. So stay tuned. Are you worried that COVID-19 is going to put off your plans for theological education? 
the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky is offering a full schedule online this fall. Our approach to online education is unique, offering classes live and face-to-face via Zoom. At BSK, relationship is critical, and we are thrilled to be able to offer our Master of Divinity, Pastoral Care Certificate, and Rural Ministry Certificate this way. Learn more at bsk.edu. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we have a very important guest with us, Dr. Terrell Carter, Vice President of Community Life and Chief Diversity Officer at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Dr. Carter, welcome to the pod today. Thank you for having me. So, Terrell, two things. Um, One, I I read a report the other day about training, uh, police officer training, and how little training goes into de-escalating uh, situations, that there, there is uh, training that goes on. Uh, but in comparison to firearms training and to you know, other training uh, that is more confrontational, uh, and I'm not saying that they don't need that, but it's really disproportionate when it comes to de-escalating situations uh, and you know how to be a, a community police officer. And then secondly, um, I've been trying to, to, to read and research more about the police department in Camden, New Jersey. Um, you know, I, I don't know if, have you heard their story? Uh, which which story? Because there are well, a couple of well, stories. They, they, <laughs> they, they completely abolished their police department um, and mm-hmm. then rebuilt it. Uh, use and getting community input. Um, and so they fired all of their officers, uh, took two years to uh, reconstruct their department. It was more of a county police department instead of a city, a city structure, focusing in on community policing relationships, getting officers out of cars, onto the streets uh, to talk to people, interact with people. Um, and so far, I mean, the crime rates have, have just gone down tremendously. Um, and they have concluded it, you know, is a success and a potential model for other cities across the country. So, I mean, I guess my, my overarching question is how much attention in training and continuing education do police officers, are they given to de-escalate? We've already established that it's not in, there's no incentive to de-escalate a situation, but are they, is this, is this a, a value for the policing community? So I would say, number one, any training that they receive is essentially uh, the police department's ability or opportunity to say, okay, a police officer's done that. Well, we told him not to, so don't sue us. It's a risk uh, assessment kind of uh, move. Uh, I would say that uh, I, I won't answer your question. I will, in a, in a, traditional way, what I will say is, is that regardless of the training that they receive, uh, whether in continuing education formats or in the academy, when they get out on the street, it all goes away anyway, because no Mm. one follows it. So when I got out of the academy and began to patrol the streets, I was told, forget everything you learned in the academy, because that's not how it happens on the street. The street is the real world, and you will do it the way that we've done it. And if not, that something's going to happen to you. Wow. So every year we went through continuing education. We, you know, learned about de-escalation. We learned about how to uh, uh, more compassionately interact with people with 
mental health concerns or disabilities. Uh, and it was all fine while you were in the classroom. But as soon as you got back out into the patrol car with your unit or under the supervision of your sergeant or lieutenant, they would say, okay, you know, forget all of that. That's, that's all theory that somebody got paid to tell us. Here goes what we really need to do, which is typically the opposite of what you learned in, mm-hmm. in whatever continuing education training. Yeah, that makes sense. It's hard to grapple with because the anecdotes that we can, I continue to hear um, are about, you know, it's just a few bad apples. It's, you know, what are you going to do if there aren't any police? And, you know, they go to the other extreme um, to which my response has been, well, we've been at this side of the pendulum for so long. If we swing a little too far this way, I'm okay with that. Right. And we don't know Do what you, that, we yeah. don't know what that opposite is because, you know, we've never, we never lived in that opposite. Right. And, you know, and Dr. Carter, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think we have accepted and, and I'm going to use language I know is inflammatory to you know, some of our listeners, uh, but we have, we have adopted this white supremacy. It's so ingrained into the culture that we lived in. And part of that is an attempt to protect what is ours and this fear of the other, whether that is a brown skinned person or whether that is a black skinned person. Um, And to do that, we have to prop up these systems such as a militant police uh, presence to protect ourselves because we live in such fear. Um, I mean, the way I see it is this this is a system that has that was built on white supremacy and is sustained on white supremacy. And the real struggle that we're facing now as a society um, and the real difficult work that lays ahead of us is how do we dismantle and remove that, that white privilege, that white supremacy out of the systems and institutions uh, that we have grown so fond of to rebuild a new culture and society based upon diversity and mutual respect for all people. I agree completely. Uh, in, in a couple of my books, I, I call what you just said, I frame it as the normality of whiteness, that mm-hmm. everything in our society revolves around white culture and the comfort of white culture. And it's a lot of that is permeated by a fear of the other. Uh, I talk about in the book, Police on the Pedestal, how most of our systems of policing, again, the whole system needs to be changed, but uh, the system of policing began uh, as uh, from fear of white settlers against someone else. In, in Missouri, uh, policing began as a process to uh, protect white settlers from Native Americans who wanted to regain their land after they, you know, were, you know, uh, slaughtered and, and moved out of the the area. Uh, it then transformed into uh, a process of uh, uh, you know, capturing freed slaves or capturing escaped slaves and uh, returning them to their former masters or uh, sending them to prison to be used as a con- in a convict leasing program. Uh, so a lot of our culture, a lot of the normality of whiteness revolves around uh, white people's fear of other and not being comfortable. And I know that some of the listeners are going to find those inflammatory, but at some point we just have to tell the truth. I right. mean, it's not me trying to disrespect or be heavy handed towards everyone. 
uh, when uh, a white woman uh, feels like she's been disrespected for being asked to put her dog on the leash and she right. feels like she can call 911 and say an African-American man is threatening me. And everybody knows what that means. And everybody mm -hmm. in our nation knows what to expect from that. Um, we, we have a problem that we have to confront. Um, and this, the challenge now, I agree with you, is how do we change the system? The, the problem with that is who wants to be uncomfortable? Who wants to lose power? I, I know somebody's going to respond and say, well, I never had slaves. I never enslaved anyone. I've never called anyone. I'll call 911 on a black person. Um, but it's even more than that. And sometimes it's even more subtle things on a daily basis than that. It's the, 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 the general acceptance that we can't trust black people that if I am a white woman walking down the street and I see a black person, I need to clutch my purse and cross the street, which has happened to me multiple times. I'm wearing a bow tie right now. Your listeners can't see. Obviously <laughs> and see you that. look sharp. You look uh, really <laughs> sharp. I mean, but so this is what I wear to work every day. Right. And I go into the store in this particular community where I, I, I work and, you know, people will look at me with fear and disgust or distrust. I'm wearing a bow tie. Mm -hmm. What kind of danger yeah. <laughs> am I you when I'm wearing a bow tie? <laughs> I mean, but it's, but again, those kinds of things are ingrained in our culture where certain people are automatically under suspicion and certain people are automatically okay and trustworthy by virtue of either their occupation or virtue of their, you know, what they look like or those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So not, not only is policing an issue, as we've discussed here at length, um, but the conversation is really starting to grow around the injustices that are ingrained into the entire law enforcement and judicial systems, um, you know, deep-rooted systems of our country. Um, the problems aren't new. They've been there for a very long time. So how did history influence and perpetuate the injustices that we're seeing today regarding people of color in this country? So the underlying theme of the book, uh, Police on the Pedestal, and another book that came out January of last year is called uh, Healing Racial Divide. Uh, what I talk about is there has been a story that has been told uh, in the United States uh, that essentially um, at one point the, the story was that God had um, given white people the right to rule over other people. Uh, it's a term, you know, manifest destiny. And I don't know how mm -hmm. many of our listeners, oh, yeah. your listeners understand what that is, but uh, by virtue of who they were, uh, God blessed them like the Israelites to take over a particular land and to rule it and to uh, be blessed by it. And that idea is not gone. We had a preacher, uh, and I'm forgetting his name off the top of my head, but there was a preacher just last week who called it white blessing. Louis oh, Giglio. Yeah, Giglio. Manifest Destiny is the original hashtag blessed. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could you could have hashtag John Winthrop when he came over <laughs> from England and, and preached the city on the, the hill sermon. Uh, hashtag blessed. That's the line of the day. Uh, but I'm sorry, to, I kind of got it distracted. Uh, <laughs> but it's that a whole idea that God is behind a particular people and everybody else is allowed to suffer at the hands of those people. And we continue that idea today. And it, some people may not say, or they may say, well, I'm not talking about suffering, but uh, just God has blessed me or God has blessed us. Well, 
the challenge with that is, is that we hold God's blessing as only being applicable to us instead of all of God's creation, all of God's people. And we see it as an us versus them or an either or that if, if God does this for you, then that means God's taking something away from me. Like I can't give you your civil rights without some of my rights being uh, taken away. And that's not true. That's a false dichotomy. But that is the story of the United States, though, as well, is in order for someone to have power or to be in a good position that we feel that somebody else has to suffer or has to have a lack in order for us to have what we want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one another issue that has come out of all of the protests uh, and rallies that we've seen across the country has been, and it's, it's always been present, but it's really prevalent now. And some things are really starting to happen in regards to Confederate statues, uh, symbols within our culture that are beginning to be withdrawn because of this current movement that is afoot. Um why in the heck did it take so long, Dr. Carter, for us to begin to understand that these Confederate uh, statues that were uh, that went up after the, the, the Civil War, uh, years after the Civil War, uh, were really relics and monuments to slavery and to this white, this white, was, they were altars to the white culture of the South. Uh, and it wasn't even just the South, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Um, and it's not even, not even the Confederate statues. You know, I saw uh, poor Christopher Columbus was beheaded in, uh, in the Boston Harbor and his head <laughs> thrown into, <laughs> into the, uh, the Boston Harbor the other day. Um, and then of course. Well, in, in St. Louis as well. Yeah. Yeah. In St. Louis as well. And, and then, of course, uh, uh, the Aunt Jemima uh, 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 syrup uh, is going to be rebranded, renamed. Uh, other products are starting to, to address that. And then, of course, more recently, NASCAR made this incredible decision. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about the heartbeat of the South, uh, you couldn't get a better sport than NASCAR uh, made the decision that they would not allow any rebel flags whatsoever. Uh, you know, on the premises of a NASCAR event. A terrible, terrible uh, expression. So why in the heck did it take us so long to get here? So I'm always torn, or I have been torn when people have asked me this kind of question recently, because for some people it is a legitimate um, desire to remember some some ancestors. And for some people, they just did not know the history of the fact that many of these uh, relics were erected as part of Jim Crow law or the whole Jim Crow process after the civil rights, uh, certain gains and for the civil rights movement or during the time where we're gaining uh, certain things for the civil rights movement. Uh, so number one, I, I'm, I, I am somewhat challenged in, you know, being negative or not even being negative, being critical to people who did not know that and who, you know, for whatever reason, legitimately hold to ideas of, you know, this, these are my forefathers, those kind of things. But when you find out that no, the civil war and all of this was over the idea of slavery and a person's right and ability to have slavery. um, My question then becomes, is your uh, love for your ancestors greater than the freedom and the belonging of other people? And my response is no. I think it took so long because, number one, some people were legitimately 
um, unaware of what was going on or the, the truth behind it. But then also it took this long because we still have people who are racist and who are, are contrarians, uh, just to be truthful, who say, well, you won't make me do this. It's, it's almost like, uh, why do we have people who still don't want to wear a mask as it relates to COVID-19? Right. Well, you can't take away my right to my freedom to not have to wear a mask. Okay, don't be a moron. This is not <laughs> about you. It's about other people. Right. Yep. You are one person in a unit, in a system, in a family, in a community, in a city, in a state. And your singular right is not more important than the well-being of everyone else. Uh, so some of it, I believe, is because of a lack of awareness. Some of it is, you know, okay, I, I am legitimately proud of whoever, I may not agree with what they did, but I'm legitimately proud of them and what they represented. But then some of it is people are just going to be people mm-hmm. and they are going to be obstinate no matter what. Right. And I think, I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, I've always been, even as a small boy, I was always really perplexed by the, the Confederate monuments uh, that we would come across here in the South. Uh, I mean, just for the standpoint is they lost the war. I mean, when you do, when you take U.S. history, I mean, they're traitors. I mean, they they left the union. Right. You know, I mean, and, right. and so it was just it was bizarre. You know, and I've seen a couple of articles uh, in the midst of this uh, debate that's going on across our country. You know, remind people that there are no statues of Nazis in Germany. Not at all. None. And so it's just, it, it was just, as a little kid, though, it was always, didn't they lose? Why are we putting statues up for people who right. lost the war? Wait a minute. Think, of, think about this. We have, how long did it take for us to get a statue or monument of Martin Luther King Jr., an mm-hmm. imperfect man? So there's all this history and other right. whatever behind his, his life, but he clearly fought for, you know, the civil rights of everyone, not mm-hmm. just African Americans, but for everyone, for women, for the poor. And how long did it take before we even got a holiday in recognition for him? Right. Uh, and, you know, and now it's how many years later did we finally get one statue memorial that was privately funded on top of everything else? Mm-hmm. Imagine if there was a, a war, uh, some type of military conflict that involved a minority group. Uh, we would not have too many statues about them. We would, the word you used, Mitch, was traitors we would be using those words to describe those people, not mm-hmm. the way we have described, you know, Confederate people who fought against the union, who fought against their brothers, who killed their brothers mm-hmm. and who did not want to be a part of the nation that was being formed and shaped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's a good step forward. I don't think it's an erase an erasing of history. I think it's, uh, uh, an honest assessment of history and putting these monuments where they belong in a museum where there can be yeah. genuine, authentic conversation about who these people were, uh, that they were people of their era, but they held certain beliefs and those certain beliefs uh, went against uh, human nature and uh, the way people should act towards one another, uh, especially on the slavery issue. Um, and so I, 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 I applaud the movement. Um, I, I say it's not an erasing of history, but, 
uh, an honest assessment of history and putting these monuments and these symbols in their proper place, which would be a museum where people can learn about it and have honest and genuine conversation about it. So thank you for, for your comments and thank you so much for your time. Um, for our audience, this is an extended interview for us, but this has been well worth our time, and I hope your time as well. Uh, but Dr. Carter, we can't let you get away without asking our final question, and Autumn always has the honor of asking it. Yeah, so our motto at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything that's going on in the world right now, what is your more to tell? My more to tell is, is that we are all created in the image of God. Uh, we don't have to fully understand each other. We don't even have to fully like each other and get along. But we are called to honor God's image in everyone. And in doing that, in seeing God and treating people with the love of God can legitimately make a difference in our world. And I wish that more of us would practice that. Uh, it's not going to be easy, not always going to be comfortable. Sometimes that means that it may look like you are going to lose. And I hate the fact that we even are a culture that bases everything on winning and losing. Uh, but sometimes it may look like someone else has more than you. Sometimes it may look like you have more than someone else. The bigger point is, is to understand that all that we have, all that we are given is from our creator. Uh, and it's our privilege, it's our calling to share God's kingdom, not just on Sunday mornings and sermons, but in the way that we treat people in tangible ways on a daily basis. Very well said. Well, Dr. Terrell Carter, Vice President of Community Life and Chief Diversity Officer at Greenville University, thank you so much for being here with us. And right before we sign off, what are the names of your the, the books you mentioned in the interview? We want to make certain that uh, people get a chance to go buy those. The most recent book on policing is called Police on a Pedestal, Responsible Policing in a Culture of Worship. And then I have a book that's specifically about racial reconciliation in the church. It's called Healing Racial Divides, Finding Strength in Our Diversity. And everything that I write legitimately is written to the church on behalf of the church to try to help us understand people who are different from each other or different from us and to help us understand how we can uh, participate in the building of God's kingdom, especially as it relates to race and gender and ethnicity and those kinds of things. Excellent. And both of those can be picked up at Amazon? They can be picked up at Amazon. You can go to my website as well to Terrell Carter, T-E-R-R-E-L-L-C-A-R-T-E-R, TerrellCarter.net. And you can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at T Carter STL. Perfect. We'll have links to all of that too on our on our site. Yep. Excellent. Well, Dr. Carter, thank you so much for joining us and for our audience. Thank you for listening in. And as always, make certain you're practicing good faith.